Thank you that we get to peer into your word again. I pray that you would embolden your people to look to you as a result of what we look at. And I thank you, Lord, that in my weakness, I am confident you will show your strength. So speak through me this morning in a way that will honor you and edify the hearer. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, get to um, go to Daniel 3. We're going to continue going through Daniel, God permitting, as long as I keep coming back up here to pinch hit. Um, what do you do when the world around you seems to be caving in? Have you considered what you would do if you were required to deny your faith in Christ? Or would you, would you refuse to obey at the cost of your, your position, your possessions, and even your life? What would rescue look like to you? Would you take up arms? Would you flee the scene, if possible? Or would you comply with what's being asked of you? One thing is absolutely inescapable. Our true loyalties would surface. You really see what's inside of you when the pressure's on. Not when everything's going well. And I promise you, if you live long enough, teenagers, the roof's going to cave in on you eventually. And what you are trusting in, you're going to see, you're going to know. Same with adults. Now God's covenant people have often experienced opposition throughout their history, whether it's through a pagan, a theistic, or an atheistic system of thought. While not always many have been killed for the faith, because according to Scripture, this is their lot in life. Consider Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph is imprisoned. Do you know why? Because he chose not to get into bed with Potiphar's hot wife who wanted him. He ran. Falsely accused, imprisoned. How about Jeremiah? He's called the weeping prophet. For over 20 years, he's preaching the same message. Over 20 years. And he's telling Israel, if you don't repent, you're going to go into exile. And what happened? They went into exile. But what happened to him before that? The false prophets said, you're lying. So you know what they did to him? They imprisoned him. They beat him. They put him in a dungeon. Why? Because he's being faithful to preach the word of the Lord. How about the early church? Look in the book of Acts. One recurring theme in the book of Acts is that persecution comes because of the name of Jesus and because of the word of Christ. 
That's just throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes they get imprisoned. Sometimes they get beat. Sometimes they get stoned. How about John? John the Beloved. It's alleged that he did die of a natural death, but before he died, they boiled him in oil because of Christ, because of his faith. In the apostolic era, after the apostles, you've got many people that were killed for the faith. You've got Ignatius of Antioch, who was fed to the wild beasts, unnamed hundreds of thousands of Christians that were sent to the Colosseum to their death, to be torn apart. Why? Because of their faith in Christ. How about John Bunyan, the pastor who didn't have a ministerial license to preach, so he is put into prison this is around 1600, somewhere around there. Not only does he have four kids, his wife dies, and he's got to support his kids from prison. Why? Because of the word of the Lord. Come up to the 20th century, and you've got the bloodiest, most horrific century in recorded history, the bloodiest one of all. It's not going to be the bloodiest one ever though. The bloodiest of all is going to come when Jesus comes back. But in the 20th century, many, many Christians lost their lives under totalitarian regimes, under a communist government that says, you will not worship God you will worship essentially the state. We are your God. And if you do not bow down, well then, we're going to kill you. One such saint is Richard Wormbrand, Lutheran pastor and author of Tortured for Christ. He was incarcerated in Romania, I believe it was, for Christ for over 14 years. And some of the things that he writes that they made him do while in prison are completely and totally inhumane. But you know what? 21st century hasn't changed. Hasn't changed. Persecutions continue. Persecutions continue. And in the book of Daniel chapter 3, what we're going to see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be asking them to do something that Many, many emperors did not ask of their subjects in the 20th century. I want to read from John Lennox's book, Against the Flow. This chapter is called, When the State Becomes God. And here's what he says. When an absolute monarch like Nebuchadnezzar gets into his head that he must prove his invincibility, it's inevitable that others will suffer. Those of us who live in Western democracies may respond by saying, but that was a totalitarian extreme. It could never happen to us. Well, perhaps we should remind ourselves of the situation in just the past century when in Albania, Russia, China, and Cambodia, 
Acknowledgement of the leader's effectively divine status was mandatory. As far as Christianity is concerned, it is easy for some of us to forget that at the moment, persecution is raging in many parts of the world. For 27 years, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research has published an annual status of global mission report, which attempts to quantify the world Christian reality, comparing Christianity's circumstances to those of other faiths, and to saying how Christianity's various expressions are faring when measured against the recent and not-so-recent past. The report is unfailingly interesting, sometimes jarring and occasionally provocative. The provocation in the 2011 report involves martyrdom. For purposes of research, the report defines martyrs as believers in Christ who have lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. The report estimates that there were an, on average 270 new Christian martyrs every 24 hours over the past decade. Such that the number of martyrs in the period between 2000 and 2010 was approximately 1 million. We've heard of ISIS. We see what's going on in our country. It's completely unraveling at the seams. People don't know their left hand from their right hand. It's not a good time. It's not a good time. But for you, Christian, you're going to have to ask yourself, are you real or not? And I promise you, the persecution is going to heat up here in this country. It's heating up. It's heating up. And you need to be prepared. You need to either be in or out. That means everybody in here that's in church, you're either in or you're out. You're not playing a game. Throughout the history of God's people, their loyalties have been put to the test. And when we're talking about memorable chapters in the Bible, this is absolutely one of the most memorable of all. It rates right up to the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. It um, reminds us that God is God and He can still rescue His people. And even though it's a Sunday school story for some, and for others it's a point of mockery, God is a God who is not only there, but our God is a God who rescues His people. And He rescues them from the worst of perils. So up to this point, chapter 1, if you recall, I talked about God sovereignly displacing His people through a pagan nation because they rebelled against Him, because they thought that God was not worthy to be acknowledged. And God was faithful to keep His promise. They went into captivity. In chapter 2, God makes known to Nebuchadnezzar that His kingdom and the ones that were to follow are not everlasting. Only one kingdom is everlasting, and that is God's. Well, in chapter 3, it doesn't seem like He got the message. 
And this is evidenced in his actions. And so what we're going to be looking at in this chapter 3 of Daniel is that we're going to be looking at four big ideas. First of all, the king's requirement to worship the idol that he made of himself. Secondly, we're going to see the, the Hebrew young men refusing to obey the king's command. Thirdly, we're going to see God rescue them. And lastly, we're going to see God rewarding their faithfulness to Him. So first of all, the king's requirement to worship the idol, verses 1-7. through seven. Here we go. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's confession in chapter 2, verse 47, was just lip service. It, he says this, of God, after Daniel reveals his dream to him and explains what it means. Here's the response of the king in chapter 2, verse 47. Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying he, this is not a declaration of being ultimate. This is not a pronouncement of Daniel's God as being the one true God. Why? Because he's not using the word the. The way, to, the way to show that God is ultimate, he would have to say he is the God. He is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Something which in later chapters he's going to be forced to say. Well, despite God's warning through the dream and interpretation that he would judge and destroy idol-worshipping empires, the king doesn't listen and he erects this statue of 90, uh, a statue made of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. This thing was huge. It was massive. Now, I want you to notice he does not forbid the private worship of other deities. Sound familiar? For him, pluralism is the accepted social norm. But, he demands and requires complete loyalty to the state as represented by the public ceremony of prostrating before his patron god, presumably the god Nabu, 
which is the God of wisdom and scribal arts. Isn't this interesting that you can privately worship no problem. Right? No religion is better than another. That's just lip service. There is no neutrality in any world system. There's always an ultimate reference point people will go to. And here, it's the king. What does this mean? It means that you have to pledge allegiance to Nabu's viceroy, which is Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar is completely and totally full of himself? Yeah, his head is so big, he can't, he can't, you can't see his eyes. Okay? All the features in his face, you can't see them. He's so full of himself. And if you refuse, you're going to be burned alive. Now, you know, if I had to choose which way I'd want to die, probably a bullet in my head would be great because it's like you're gone instantly. Okay? Torture, I'm not too into. Honestly, because it's slow and painful. But of, of all of the, the ways people have died and all of the pains that I have heard of, uh, I have heard that being burned alive, nothing can compare to that pain. And that's horrific. I want you to feel what's going on here. This isn't just a story. This actually happened in space-time history to three of God's faithful servants. This is going to happen again in the future. Revelation 13, 7-8. Listen to what this says. It was also given to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. What we're seeing in the book of Daniel is going to happen again in a much greater capacity in the, in the final end. But what's ironic here is that it was Yahweh, not Nabu, that revealed to the king through Daniel the dream and its interpretation. You know what he's doing? He's a freeloader. Nebuchadnezzar is freeloading. He'll take the goodies that Yahweh will give him, but he won't bow down to him. So, what idols are contending for your loyalty, Christian? Who or what is requiring of you loyalty at the expense of, of your faithfulness to God? Have you bought into the idea of religious pluralism? What is that? Well, it's the belief that every religion is true, providing a genuine encounter with the ultimate, even though some may be better than others, nevertheless, they're all adequate. Much more can be said about it, but if we state it this way, it's even simpler. It's the view that all religions are true, and to hold that only one religion is true is not only abhorrent, but utterly unacceptable. There's, in other words, there is a refusal to see that any religion is truer or superior to another. So, implication, 
There's no difference between Yahweh, Allah, Brahman, Buddha, Jainism, etc., etc. We live not only in a relativistic society in the West, which says that there is no truth, but also in a pluralistic society, religious pluralistic, which says no religion is better than any other. Do you know where that comes from? If you recall the seminar on Darwin Design and Origins, it comes from a view of knowledge. And there is a separation of what we know from personal preference. There is a separation where religion is private, subjective, and that's where you get your values, which is up here in an upper story. The lower story is where fact and reason and knowledge obtain, and that's where science comes in to play. It's so convoluted, it's ridiculous. And then we wonder why there's so much mental health issues in this country. Number two. Yeah, okay, King. You command me to obey, but I'm not going to do it. The refusal. They refuse to worship any God but God. Verses 8 through 18. Verse 8, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So here, they're getting accused by the nobility. And these Chaldeans were in high standing in their community. So the weight of their accusations was really felt. <clears throat> What were they accused of? Not conforming. Do you know Justin Martyr and his apology to the Roman state, one of the things that he used, this is like early 1st century, 2nd century, one of the arguments he used, see Christians were being falsely accused of all kinds of stuff, one of the things that he used was the behavior of Christians. That it was Christians who were feeding the poor. It was Christians who were meeting the needs of the people that the Roman government was completely and totally alienating. That would be a hard apology to use today about our church. Not our church here specifically. I'm talking about the church generally, especially in America. We're so much about us and not God that we're blinded to it. We're no different than the world. In so many ways, the way we conduct business, in our sexual ethics, in what's important to us, Anyway, this wasn't good news for the three Hebrew children. 
Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Is this true? Can you feel it? Bring them in. Come on. Now I'm going to give you a chance to recant, essentially, is what's going on. Verse 15. Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the instruments, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But, if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You think they were scared? Yeah. I mean, how could they not be scared? How could you not be scared? You're seeing this, this furnace and you are being told if you don't do this, you're going to be thrown in there. I don't like the way so many of us tend to look at biblical heroes. We forget that they had feelings, emotions, struggles, tensions. We shouldn't do that. They were human beings. Well, these three are confronted with an ultimatum. Now, I want you to note that the king not only has their bodies from captivity and their service in government, he wants their hearts, he wants their souls. He wants complete and total domination. He wants what is only rightly God's. Because God alone is creator. And here this creature wants to do something that is not what a creature is designed to do. So why didn't they conform? Why didn't they conform? Well, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, I think, is one answer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Another, Exodus 21 through 4. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. This is the Shema. This is the Ten Commandments. This is what these men had put in their souls. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I promise you, if you're not hiding the word of God in your heart, if I'm not hiding the Word of God in my heart, I will rebel against God so much more easily. What are you putting in your heart? What are you beholding? What are you meditating on? Gleason Archer, a um, scholar, says this about the three men. For them, the will and glory of Yahweh meant more than fame, position, or security. I want to stop here. What, do, what is pushed in our country as the American dream? Fame. Everybody wants to be famous. Uh, everybody wants position. And everybody wants security. 
It's, it's one of the reasons why we go to school so that we can get a, a good job. That's one way of doing it. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people really forfeit their soul because money becomes their God. And you need to be careful of that. But he goes on and says, loving Him with all their heart, they were ready to lay down their lives for Him. Such was the logic of genuine faith. Somewhat as Paul the Apostle was later to say in Acts, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. For them, listen to me please, for them the will of God was everything. Well, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. It's not God first, family, country, blah, blah, blah. These false ideas that a lot of Christians buy into of how reality is to be structured. From the Christian biblical view, reality is structured around God. So if you look at, uh, uh, imagine a wheel with a hub and the spokes... The hub is God, and the spokes are everything that you're into in your life. How is that honoring God? What, how does that placard God? How, how does that look? Oh, a spoke is school. Another spoke is work. Another spoke is your social life. Another spoke is your, 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 your spiritual development. But it's all connected to God. And one of the challenges that we have is doing the separation. It's not a biblical concept. God is at the center of it all. So as you are working and you're going to school, you have goals in your life, you don't even know what the heck you're going to do with your life. Been there. Still kind (laughs) of. It doesn't matter ultimately because if God is your center, then sooner or later, it's going to be fine. You know you're going to die before you read the books that you wanted to read. Do you know how many books I've wanted to read I've not gotten to? There's going to be a lot of unfinished business that you're going to have before you, you breathe your last. Hopefully, the most important you will not neglect, which is being in a right relationship with your Creator through Jesus Christ. That's the most important one. So, in answer to what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands, their answer, essentially is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though they're not saying it, with their actions they are saying it. The God who has sovereignly displaced us through you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's who. The God who has absolute sovereign control of the kings and kingdoms of this world. Remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar? The God whose kingdom alone is eternal and unshakable. That's the God of creation. The one and only God. Utterly exclusive. 
there is no plural, religious pluralism in the Bible. God judges it. God condemns it because it's a false, it's false. It's not true. Verse 16, here's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. How in the world can they do that? They didn't just get there by accident. took time cultivating their relationship with God through word, through prayer, through ritual. Three years ago? Three years ago. Um, I was sick. I had not been training. I was riding a lot my bike. I had not been training. And I decided to go with a friend of mine to the Solvang Century. Um, I didn't train for the Solvang Century. You talk about pride. You talk about utterly not being in touch with reality. Um, I only finished 47 miles. Um, among, uh, other, for, among other reasons, uh, uh, I was all alone going into the wind at 30 miles an hour through Vandenberg uh, Air Force Base and I had nobody to draft with. I didn't have drop bars. I didn't have a lot of things, but the bottom line is the reason I couldn't complete that is because I was not properly prepared. I was not properly prepared. It takes a lot of endurance. Rarely can somebody run a marathon without training for it. Well, the Christian walk is a marathon. Paul uses analogies of a soldier being enlisted. He talks about wrestling he talks about boxing or shadow boxing something like so he wouldn't be disqualified he beats his body he goes through rigors he goes through disciplines so that he might run the race and finish it well you can't run a race and finish it if you're not training and believer if you are swallowed up with the things of this world in such a disproportionate manner that all you do is drink in social media, entertainment, sloth, and you neglect this book, you're not going to make it. I don't see how you can make it. Well, isn't God sovereign? Yeah, and your choices matter. So what are you doing with your life?
What are you doing with your life? What do we have here? What we have here is a model of civil disobedience. You understand? Remember, civil disobedience. Uh, in Acts uh, 5, verses 27 through 29, um, the apostles responded, we must obey God rather than men, when the authorities told them, we told you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And here's what they say. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because God is ultimate and everything is not. Everything else is needy and contingent on God. Only God is self-existent. This is why He and He alone is to be adored. And rightly so. You're the creature. You owe everything to Him. I owe everything to Him. God alone is ultimate, not the state, not the church, not the media, not the school board, not any monarch or president or politician. God and God alone. So when these require allegiance, it can only go so far. King Nebuchadnezzar, you've crossed the line. Supreme Court justices, you've crossed the line on same-sex marriage. You've crossed the line on abortion. You've crossed the line. But civil disobedience, it requires courage. It requires being sober-minded. David says in Psalm 27:1, "The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread?" See how God-centered He is. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1:8 through 10 says, "For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life." Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. So, back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are two ifs in those sentences, and they demonstrate this confidence that they have. The confidence is first and foremost that God exists. Are you confident that God exists? Do you struggle with believing that God exists? I hope some of you struggle and I hope some of you get to work on getting answers because there are plenty of them, really good ones. And when I'm talking about God, I'm talking about the God of Scripture. The one true, self-existent, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good, all-knowing God. Secondly, that He is able to rescue them from the king. But third, even if they must burn alive, they're not going to serve another god. They refuse to compromise. Why? Because they understood 
they understood that this life is temporary. They understood that this life is temporary. What's that saying? YOLO? Yo bro? Yo ho? You only live once? Actually, you live forever. Once you come into existence, you live forever. Either as God's friend or as His enemy. Now you only have this life here and what you do with this is going to determine eternity. Where you will be in eternity. But you don't only live once, you live forever. So where does this resolve, this, this stubbornness come from? It's not because they were Jewish, okay? <laughs> no, it's because they hid the Word of God in their heart. They were real. They were born again. They were, re- they were real. They were real believers. Real believers. They knew their, their history of God's covenant people. They understood that... Um, even though they were judged by God, nevertheless, they were still loved by God. They never forgot their identity as God's people. And their confidence is God's faithfulness, even though they may die. Now these are men of whom, Hebrews 11.38 says, these were men of whom the world was not worthy. And those who quenched the power of fire through faith. Biblical faith at times will cost us our lives, but even in death, God's love toward us is not shaken. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. This is all what God does. Alright? So then He asks the question, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? Do you understand one of the reasons many people fall away from the faith is called the problem of evil or the many problems of evil? Because pain and suffering come, a lot of people conclude God must not love me. Paul right there is absolutely contradicting that thought. Hence, it's really important for us as believers to get our theology of suffering straight so that we don't shipwreck. He goes on, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's awesome. That's awesome. So when reality comes crashing down on you, friend, and it will, the longer you live, the more pain you endure. Right, Pat? Yeah, the more pain you endure. 
Getting old ain't for the faint of heart. It's for the courageous. When the roof falls in on you, are you going to run to God? Or are you going to run away from Him? What are you going to do? Well, depending on how you have been training, you can probably get a pretty good guess what you'll do. So, the divine rescue. Verses 19-27. through 27. So you got the king, he's full of himself. Hebrew children are saying, ain't biting. And here comes divine rescue. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their, uh, their caps, and other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up, who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then they did. The satraps, prefects, governors, kings, uh, officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, etc., etc., so here, what do you got? The king's fury is unleashed. These men must die. Instead, who dies? The executioners. The three men were utterly protected. Why? Because of Emmanuel. Which means God with us. God with us when? In the worst of times. God was with them right there. Now many scholars believe that this was a theophany which was an early appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, one thing is certain, that it's, uh, whether it's Jesus or an angel, a miracle took place and this pagan king saw it. So remember this, the circumstances are not ultimate. God is ultimate. Now do you fear death? I wanna, do you fear death? You know, death is the last enemy and death, Jesus, through the resurrection of the dead, conquered its power. Do you fear it? Because it's coming. It is the equalizer of rich and poor. But do you fear it more than you fear God? Matthew 10:28, Jesus says, "Do not fear." 
Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I tell you, yes, fear him. Who's that? It's God. It's God. What's wonderful though is that through Christ and through what He did on the cross sinners like me and you can be reconciled to God. His wrath removed from us because Jesus bore it on Calvary's cross. So that those who are His no longer have to fear death truly. Ultimately, you don't have to. Because Jesus conquered it for you. Biblical rescue is ultimately by God's sovereign power, not our own feeble efforts. Again, biblical rescue is ultimately by God's sovereign power, not by our own feeble efforts. You can apply that to every other religion. Every other religion, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is a works righteousness versus a faith righteousness. Every other religion, your, you know, your good deeds, I'll, I'll do your bad deeds. In Christianity, you fall down at the feet of Jesus and His sacrifice, His life, is what rescues you from wrath. His perfect obedience is what delivers you from the wrath of God. So that there is no boasting only in the Lord. Only in God. Well, finally, we saw that divine rescue. Now there's the reward. Verses 28 through 30. We see these three men being exalted before non-believers. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I want to point something out. In chapter 2, there is no God but God who can reveal mysteries. Chapter 3, there is no God but God who can deliver in this way. God triumphs over the pagan king. The three men are caused to prosper by this pagan king. And Nebuchadnezzar here confesses that there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. That is akin to every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My conclusion is this, that until the new heaven and the new earth arrive and God's redemptive plan comes to fulfillment completely, we must remember that when we're required 
to give our ultimate loyalties to creatures rather than to God, we must refuse. We must refuse to cow down to this idolatry. For even if at that moment God chooses not to rescue us from temporary peril, He will ultimately reward us with the greatest of all rescues in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be called sons and daughters of the Most High through Christ. And Revelation 21, 23-22-6 says this, and I close, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bond servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Your life and my life is a vapor. 80, 90, 120 years is nothing in light of eternity. What will you do with what you've heard this morning? Father, I pray that we'll take it to heart. I pray that we will make it our goal in life to know You, to love You, and to love others, and to fulfill the Great Commission, which is to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that You have commanded. And You are with us even unto the end of the age, Jesus. That's what I pray. I pray that everyone hearing Me would make it their goal to train in righteousness. Train in righteousness, Lord. So that when the day where the roof does cave in, the body may be destroyed, but the soul not even. And I pray for Sovereign Grace Fellowship. I ask God that this church, that You would grow us in our training. That You would grow us in walking in righteousness. That You would embolden our witness. That You would remind us more and more that like You saturated Yourself with the Word and constantly were in prayer, we need to do the same thing, Jesus, so that we might 
pass the test. So, Lord, thank you. Praise you for these three men. May their lives affect us today and the next day and the next week. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.